Hi everyone, welcome to this week's lecture on in issues in social stratification. This week we're going to continue looking at indigenous peoples in Canada, looking at the topic of delegated and hierarchical constructions of indigeneity or the intra-indigenous stratification that has historically been created by Canadian legal and cultural institutions that have over time also become embodied within some indigenous communities and by some indigenous peoples. So this week we're going to focus on the legal construction of indigenous peoples with some illustrations of implications. But before we get into this lecture, I want to make a couple of points about terminology as, as it relates to our discussion for today. So the term Indian in reference to indigenous peoples is generally regarded as outdated and offensive, although not exclusively. Some indigenous peoples use the term Indian to refer to themselves, their first nation or tribe in the United States. Uh, and this is more prominent in the US than in Canada. As well, the term Indian is sometimes used in Canadian legal contexts to refer to colonial policies or terms. So for instance, the Indian Act or when talking about legal Indian status, which are both, which is um, status is a colonial concept created by the Canadian state in an effort to control indigenous peoples. Throughout this lecture, I use the term Indian not to refer to indigenous peoples, but to illustrate um, the constructed nature of, of this term So, as a Western concept. So within this legal context, um, for instance, when talking about in Indian status, I might use it then, but also to emphasize that I'm referring to a stereotypical Western construction of who indigenous peoples are. For instance, in uh, Canadian legal and cultural contexts, um, this Western understanding or this Western concept of the Indian looks a certain way and acts a certain way um, and re is related to stereotypical characteristics that Canada has framed as authentic, despite having no real bearing to actual Indigenous peoples. So in this sense, the term Indian is used to signify a Canadian reduction of indigenous peoples, as well as an internalization of Western of these Western constructions of indigenous peoples. So as noted last week, indigenous peoples, communities, cultures, experiences, and locations are diverse, with Canada home to more than 600 nations with nearly, and with nearly 900,000 peoples living in urban areas in 2016. Prior to the centuries-long European invasion, as well as alongside this period of colonialism, Indigenous peoples have always occupied highly diverse realities, with nation-specific economic, social, political, and cultural systems. Ultimately, Indigenous peoples across Turtle Island are and have always represented culturally, socially, economically diverse peoples in terms of so things like culture, identity, as well as geographic location. Despite this diversity, Western cultural and knowledge spaces continually conflate indigenous peoples in what has been described as a heavily stereotyped, heavily stereotyped monolith patterned on a colonial ideology that flourishes to this day. So that's this understanding um, uh, or this construction of the Indian monolith. 
These Western understandings of who Indigenous peoples are hold an important royal role in the very fiber of Canadian society. So this stereotypical construction um, holds an important role in Canadian society and how Canadian Canadians um, understand themselves as well as Canadian culture. Indigenous identity is never a neutral issue. Definitions of this under this Western understanding of Indianness are deeply embedded within systems of colonial power, with indigenous identity highly political and negotiated in relation to collective identity as defined by Canadian institutions. Since early colonialism, the Crown and then later Canada has distorted and disrupted indigenous ways of identifying self in relation to collective identity in land. Until more recently in the 21st century, the traditional academic understanding of Indigenous identity has been couched in terms of primordialism, which is a, uh, a state of existence in contrast to modern modernity. This understanding of Indigenous peoples as primordial, historical beings has contributed to non-Indigenous understandings of authenticity or particularly this Western construction of the authentic real Indian as existing, as existing outside of contemporary modern society. This image, this Western image of real Indians as authentic and static relics of the past supports Canada's constructed legal definitions of Indigenous peoples within a framework of having status or non-status. However, this Western understanding of Indigenous peoples is just that, a Western construction that is socially constructed and mediated by contact um, with colonial institutions. Meaning, Western understandings of Indigenous peoples only exist in relation to the Western gaze and Western understandings of um, authenticity. The concept of authenticity in relation, in relation to Indigenous peoples is complex, related to issues of Aboriginal rights and title that we talked about last week that are constantly being negotiated within parameters set out by colonial institutions. Understandings of Indigenous peoples and the types of discourses that seek to frame this understanding, for instance, colonial policies, and Western cultural discourses need to be understood within the context that they were developed. That is the colonial, the colonial histories of Canada. The fact that indigenous identity in Canada has primarily been shaped by a system of regulation and control that Britain developed as a global imperial power has meant that the ways of controlling Western representations of Indianness has um, has developed directly from a colonial state. The United States and Canada, although similar intent, employed distinct measures of colonial control. Whereas Canada used colonial legislation like the Indian Act, the United States largely relied on settler violence and warfare, which was then later supplemented by legislation and policies, all of which focused on directly removing whole communities from their land base uh, and gradually destroying tribal sovereignty. In Canada, the Crown and then later the federal government sought to control Indianness from the very start through identity legislation by creating the Indian Act, um, the Indian Act's legal status system, 
and it's highly divisive manner by of externalizing what were derogatorily framed as half-breeds and creating patriarchal divisions within native communities, which automatically and continuously um, bled off what they called bled off people from their communities without the need for actual um, violence or policies of removal in the same um, way that the U.S. used. So this is what we're going to focus on for today, this legal regulation of Indigenous peoples and identity through the construction of status. So for one, the construction of status, as well as the patriarchal divisions, both of which were enacted through the Indian Act. So meaning um, this construction of status created um, both urban or non-status identities, so based on that, uh, racialized, so those racialized identities as well as patriarchal divisions, so gendered um, divisions. Indigenous identity reflects complicated and complex understandings of self in relation to nation, place, and space. Yet, like we've meant, like we've talked about, indigenous identity is often framed in relation to Western legal understandings and socio-historical representations, which are deemed authentic. In particular, legal categories of Indianness are central to this discussion of identity and stratification, despite being socially constructed within a Western lens. In a field of complex and contentious issues. Understanding Indigenous identity in Canada is a challenging task. Perceptions of Indigenous identity can be complex. Definitions regularly have, so definitions of identity regularly have legal implications that often operate in surprising ways. I'm going to briefly go over the various ways in which Indigenous peoples in Canada self-identify as well as are defined by the state, and the ways in which these two systems of definition, one based in law and legislation and the other in family, tradition, and community practice, are frequently in conflict, as well as some of the implications of this uh, conflict. For people who live in traditional communities or who have deep and clear roots within them, identity can be straightforward, at least in some ways. These people probably identify themselves within a particular family, clan, band, or nation, and may use the traditional terms and names that locate them within those lands and community-based circumstances. When When introducing themselves, People may identify themselves by their genealogy, noting parents, grandparents, and more distant ancestors, by clan, or by the traditional names of their community or nation. Those those identifications often have deeper dimensions and reflect a strong and spiritual connection to the land and other cultural traditions. Land and nation-based identification can become very difficult, however, for communities who have either lost their land base, as for instance many tribes in the U.S. did in the 1950s under a governmental policy known as termination, or might have in Canada under the um, Trudeau's proposed white paper policies. That's the first Trudeau. These forms of identification may also become complex, So these forms, meaning the community or nation-based forms of identification, they may also become complex when people leave their ancestral communities or are born in cities or other locations. In many cases, um, these people, their right to claim membership may also be challenged. In the United States, tribal communities decide membership, rather, and the standards of inclusion vary widely. 
In Canada, while the government decides Indian status, community acknowledgement is also a critical factor in determining personal identity when legal status is denied. Further, the history of colonialism has further impacted nation-based identification due to intergenerational trauma for, from the residential school system that prevented individuals from passing their cultural identities on to subsequent generations. And the 60s scoop where many indigenous children's ties to indigenous community were purposefully and severely severed. It is possible that people less familiar with the specific context of their community may not recognize the traditional community name or might n not know the community or, or they might know the community or nation by another name than the one the community uses. So, so that's kind of um, gives some ideas of the challenges with um, identity. Many people who locate themselves in this nation-based manner often reject classifications like Aboriginal or um, Native or any kind of homogenizing term, which, as I explained last week, uh, derive from European sources and may, regarded, and may be regarded as the imposition of an external and hostile system of authority. Others retain their family or clan identifiers within their communities, but use the name of the band, nation, or larger cultural group. Example, Okanagan Nation, Anishinaabe, um, or use other more general terms in other contexts, such as speaking to people from other communities or people from other non-Indigenous non cultural backgrounds. Many people use the term uh, terms such as Native American in the U.S., Aboriginal or First Nations in, the can in Canada, or more commonly now Indigenous worldwide to identify themselves as part of a larger collective identity, shaped by a common history both of long ancestral traditions on the land and of a long and simil similarly troubled relations with colonizers and various forms of government authority. But as with most things in language, um, their meanings are determined by use and the grounds of their application are constantly shifting. For instance, like I've mentioned for the last few decades and, and until recently, the most, inclusive, the most inclusive term in general usage in Canada has been Aboriginal, a term that gained significant currency with its use in the repatriated Can Canadian Constitution of 1982. The Constitution itself was a, a site of struggle for Indigenous rights in Canada, and in the negotiations leading to the inclusion of Section 35, which, acknowledged, which acknowledges Aboriginal rights, Aboriginal became the mutually accepted term. In the con Constitution, Aboriginal is used to include three groups previously defined by earlier, earlier categories of Indian, Inuit, and Métis. Each of these three predecessor terms had existing functions, like I mentioned before, in Canadian law. Indian, for instance, is the generic term used in the Indian Act, a centerpiece of state identity regulation since 1876. The Indian Act and its later amendments define who is an Indian and who isn't under Canadian law. Status under the Act confirmed by registration and government-issued status, government status card confers certain rights and privileges, though its primary purpose throughout most of Canadian history has been to regulate and restrict those it is defined and to, and to deny them the rights accorded to citizens. 
In past times, status has been necessary to live on legally defined Indian reserves. All right, so I'm going to move into kind of discuss more about this these concepts, Indian status and the Indian Act role, Indian Act's role in defining identity. Identity in terms of the Canadian delegated identity. The Indian Act administers major aspects of Indigenous peoples' lives, even setting out a legal definition of Indian and how this legal identity called Indian status can be conferred and inherited. It is, in effect, a state-constructed racial category that is imposed on those Indigenous peoples it recognizes under the pretense of making it possible for the state to administer policy, to administer policy and legislation directed at Indigenous peoples. While traditional nation-based identities have persisted despite colonial efforts to eradicate them, the Indian Act has sought to remove Indigenous, indigenous agency over term determining identity. The Indian Act has produced powerful discourses of Indigenous identity that have deeply affected Indigenous peoples and communities because they have been exercised through Canadian law and have had very real consequences for Indigenous peoples' lived realities. Those with Indian status are entitled to have access to resources set aside by the Canadian federal government in compensation for removal from traditional t territories, including healthcare, education, and the legal right to reside on reserved lands. Although we know that this compensation is incredibly underfunded, and it has the government has continually sought to um, not live up to their end of the bargain. As it exists today, the Indian Act sets out two categories of Indian status that a person may possess full status and half status. Those with full status can pass on their status to their children. Those with half status cannot unless they have children with another person with full or half statuses. So in effect, two statuses or two half statuses make a full status. If a person with full status and a non-status person who is still an indigenous person um, have a child have a child, that child will be half status. So what I mean by non-status person is that there are many indigenous peoples that are not recognized as belonging to a specific, so a specific um, nation or band and meaning specific meaning that they um, have a local reserve, something like that. So there are lots of indigenous peoples, particularly in the United States, who live um, within communities, uh, within First Nations that um, are not legally recognized. So to continue, if a person with full status and a non-status person have a child, that child will be half status. If that half status person has a child with a non-status Indigenous person, their child will not have legal recognized Indian status. This is called the two-generation cutoff and removes Indian status from those below the cutoff mark. Something that was um, created by the government in an effort to, um, under the Indian Act, to eradicate Indigenous peoples. Um, and we're not gonna, I'm not gonna touch on this too much, but it is a, um, it is, this two, this two generation cutoff um, is di discriminatory by gender. 
So Indian status is very complex and can be very confusing, but what is key to understand is that Indian status was created to breed out after two or three generations, to breed out indigenous peoples after two or three generations. And it was a Western construction of, of basically measuring indigenous identity through blood um, quantum, which I'm gonna get into. The logic of Indian status flows from thinking of indigeneity as something that can be quantifiably measured and expressed in concepts such as blood quantum. Blood quantum, in this case, refers to the degree of uh, Indianness, remember Western understandings of, or colonial understandings of Indianness. So the degree of Indianness a person possesses expressed as a percentage. Blood quantum is a Western construction that assumes that that an indigenous person's identity can be empirically measured, and it has its history in uh, racialized pseudosciences common in the 19th century that proposed the degree of uh, racial that proposed that degrees of racial mixing could be measured, for instance, by the color of a person's skin, hair texture, and other physical traits. So essentially, it is a racialized, racist um, construction that puts the control over defining indigenous identity into the colonial power hands. Indian status is not strictly based on blood quantum, but rather on Victorian notions that judged a person's heritage only by their descent along the male line. A generational cutoff, however, is related to blood quantum in that the more a person's heritage is mixed, the less likely they will qualify for Indian status. As a result, the hope, the um, colonial hope was that Indian status would bleed off over generations of intermarriage. So although this, um, I just want to make a note that while blood blood quantum was one way of defining Indianness, and legal Indian status, the um, Canadian government would also arbitrarily take away Indian status for other things that were deemed more Western and less authentically Indian. For instance, if an Indigenous person um, spoke English or worked for the um, Hudson Bay Company, the government could, if they wanted to, take away their Indian status because they were deemed less Indian-like in this um, stereotypical and racist Western construction of authentic Indianness. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about um, that kind of thing in a bit. Uh, in addition to those who do not qual- who do not qualify for Indian status after the two-generation cutoff. The Indian Act has also historically excluded particular indig- indigenous groups and individuals such as the Métis and the Inuit. And so these groups were not entitled to Indian status. Indian status has also been patrilineal until uh, relatively recently, and the ways in which Indian status could be conferred or inherited depended on only on men's status. Prior to 1985, if a woman with Indian status married a non-status man, she would lose her status and their children would not be entitled to status. Even if she divorced, um, divorced her husband or if her husband died she could not regain her status and if she if she was married if she married a status man she would assume his um, status so she'd be losing her um, 
uh, ties to her home community, to her natal community. On the other hand, um, if a man with Indian status married a non-status woman, his wife would gain status even if she did not even have indigenous heritage. So she could be a white woman and she would gain his status. And their children would be entitled to Indian status. So it was um, up until 1985 and even after 1985 until 2019, Bill S, um, the Indian Act um, legally allowed for gender discrimination. The Indian Act controlled and defined all aspects and still does control all aspects of indigeneity by Western standards and appropriated indigenous people's right to identify themselves. So a gendered and racialized ranking system for determining who was considered to be the most Indian within Western understandings of authenticity was developed, which included framing indigenous identity through blood quantum and cultural criteria of Indianness, like I mentioned previously, or status. This system determined indigenous rights, including the right to live on the reserve, and resulted in the forced displacement of thousands of predominantly in indigenous women and their children. So not, like I've kind of touched on, not all people who might identify as, as indigenous have legal recognized indigenous status. Um, in fact, as I've already alluded to, a long history exists of Canada creating policy to limit and to arbitrarily limit and take away this Western form of legal recognition through policies of enfranchisement and gender discrimination. So enfranchisement is a legal process of terminating a person's Indian status and conferring full Canadian citizenship. Enfranchisement was a key feature of the Canadian federal government's assimilation policies regarding Indigenous peoples. Voluntary enfranchisement was introduced in the Gradual Civilization Act of 1857 and was based on the assumption that Indigenous peoples would be willing to surrender their legal and, and, and ancestral identities for the privilege of gaining full Canadian citizenship and assimilating, in, assimilating into Canadian society. Within this act, individuals or entire bands could choose to be um, enfranchised. In the case where a man with a family enfranchised, his wife and children would automatically be enfranchised. So it sought to assimilate indigenous peoples into Canadian settler society by encouraging enfranchisement. Uh, but this act was in a sense a failure as only one person voluntarily enfranchised. Few indigenous peoples actually wanted to abandon their cultural and legal and nation-based identities um, as anticipated um, by colonial authorities who thought that they would, uh, people would want to be enfranchised. Enfranchisement became compulsory with the Indian Act of 1876, which stood until 1961. So this enfranchisement part, or um, amendment in the Indian Act, or regulation in the Indian Act, Indian Act stood until 1961. Over time, what this meant, in terms of being compulsory, what this meant was that indigenous peoples were automatically enfranchised for doing things that were considered to be not authentically Indian. 
such as serving in the Canadian Armed Forces, gaining a university education, leaving reserves for an extended period of time, for instance, for employment, and most notably for Indigenous women, if they married non-Indian, non-status Indian men or if their Indian husbands died or abandoned them. So under this act, although both men and women could be compulsorily enfranchised, Indigenous women and their descendants were most impacted in a calculated intention of bleeding off Indigenous peoples, what uh, was framed as bleeding off Indigenous peoples related to um, blood, blood quantum and cultural construction of Indianness. So prior to 1985, like I've mentioned, um, if an if a Indian woman married a non-Indian man, she would lose her status. This meant that legally she ceased to be a legal status Indian under the Indian Act, as did all as did all of her children. Conversely, like I, we've um, already mentioned, uh, this wasn't the same for men. Whereas a non-Indian woman who married a status Indian man gained status. So it is estimated that most of the 25,000 plus indigenous peoples who were externalized from communities between 1876 and 1985 as a result of status loss was due to this ongoing gender discrimination in the Indian Act. There are significant consequences to being enfranchised, among them the loss of right to live on the reserve and feel and be treated as part of a... First Nations community. Many women were forced to move away from their home reserves, like their natal communities um, and their families. Even if they left their husbands or if their husbands died, they were not necessarily able to return to their communities. And many women were forced into urban areas to to find employment and ways to support their families, increasing the representation of Indigenous peoples in urban areas. The gender discrimination of the Indian Act did not go unchallenged. Lobbying and legal action by Indigenous women, uh, women's organizations, and others resulted in the introduction of Bill C-31, which proposed to amend the Indian Act to return status to those who lost status as a result of forced enfranchisement. In 1985, Bill C-31 was passed and the Indian Act was amended to return status to those who had been enfranchised as well as their children. It also formally separated Indian status from band membership. So Indian status remained in the control of the federal government while band membership was given to individual First Nations, making it possible for First Nations to develop their own band membership rules that reflect their unique cultures and customs. And so they would have some degree of autonomy over the configuration of their community's identities. The restoration of status to women and their descendants by Bill C-31 was not without controversy within Indigenous communities. And further gender discrimination in the Indian Act still existed, like I mentioned, until the 2009 amendment um, titled Bill C-3. Alongside this gender-based displacement, Throughout the 20th century, residential schools and policies of forced adoption, such as the 60 scoop, like we talked about last week, um, in addition to general patterns of migration to, city, to cities and intermarriage, resulted in the alienation of many people from their communities of ancestral origin. People might well know that they had 
indigenous ancestry but not know their community background or not be able to demonstrate their status. Further, living within urban spaces continued to be framed within discourses of authenticity as an indicator of not being a real Indian, a racialized identity construction that, like gender discrimination, had had come to become internalized within Indigenous communities over time. So it wasn't just um, the Canadian government that said, you're not a real Indian. This understanding of authenticity also became internalized over time um, and was often maintained within communities as a way of limiting membership, something that um, communities have seen as necessary given the overall lack of funding um, and resources. For instance, gender discrimination in women's subordinate community position as well as the fight for equality in the Indian Act have long been dismissed uh, throughout the last half of the uh, 20th century and even uh, into the 21st century have been dismissed by status men, indigenous organizations, and other community members who have equated relative male privilege and material experiences as ungendered indigenous collective experience. For many indigenous peoples and communities, the pursuit of gender equality continues to be viewed as an area of individual or niche interest and of lower importance compared to other indigenous collective issues such as sovereignty, with women who pursue these individual interests slowing down the collective indigenous identity. Further, um, there has been critiques of pursuing gender equality as a kind of Western construction and therefore um, as recolonizing. It is most critical to recognize that this system of regulation of Indian identity by the Canadian state formed a separate system overlaying and at many points overriding community practice and participating in a, and participating in a more general sense in a system designed at times very explicitly to supersede and undermine community traditions. For instance, since contact, the imposition of colonial institutions like heteronormativity, patriarchy, Christianity, racial superiority, was one of the first methods of devaluing indigenous ways of life by targeting indigenous women and um, systems of relation, like gender equality. While ideologically undermining indigenous women, these imposed Western institutions of heteronormativity and patriarchy and Christianity systematically elevated the social roles and responsibilities of heterosexual indigenous men relative to indigenous women, through which indigenous men could buy into and institutionalize their newly elevated status. So elevated relative to indigenous women, but still... um, devalued in relation to non-indigenous men and peoples. The combined imposition of Western colonial institutions with an unwillingness by Europeans to recognize indigenous women's authority and leadership within communities, as well as the new indigenous reality of trauma and and vulnerability imposed by uh, colonial violence, had over time the, the effect of reordering of gender relations in subordination of indigenous women. 
Western ideas of gender and race-based hierarchies were cemented in community-based systems through the Indian Act of 1876, like we've talked about, which legislated intra-Indigenous power relations into Indigenous communities and further normalized, racialized, and gendered hierarchical understandings of identity and rights. So, of, of course, these are all very complex issues, and we have only touched the surface on them. But what should be recognized is that Canadian government has, over time, imposed these delegate or delegated Indigenous identity and, and imposed a hierarchical understanding of indigeneity that is not compatible or reflexive of the complexities of Indigenous identity.